the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thanks for tuning in. You know, I have a brand new podcast, The Interview, and this will be part of it. It is the book that I inhaled this weekend, 2034, a novel of the next war. It's co-authored by Admiral James Stavridis, United States Navy, retired former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, and Elliot Ackerman, eight years in the Marines on the Special Forces side, also a graduate of Tufts Fletcher School and undergraduate, I believe, former White House fellow, novelist, four novels below him and beneath his belt. Welcome, gentlemen. Congratulations. Number one in the thriller category on Amazon.com. I talked to you last week briefly. Today, we're going to go a little bit deep. But Admiral, are you gratified? This is quite the start for a book. I'm feeling great. And uh, we actually hit number seven on the overall national Amazon bestseller combined fiction, nonfiction. We were slightly outpaced by Dr. Seuss, but otherwise I'm feeling pretty good about everything. Elliot, uh, you've done a lot of book launches. How's this feel to you for 2034? It uh, feels great. I'm glad people are engaging with the, uh, the book. So it's exciting. Now, I, I am uh, comparing it to Red Storm Rising and other novels of the next war. And that's, in fact, the title, the subtitle, a novel of the next world war. Uh, and we have got to talk about it without giving too much away. So I'm going to start by asking you about the partnership. It's not easy to do a writing partner. Where did this develop? Was it at Tufts Admiral? Uh, no, that's a good guess. Elliot was actually our writer in residence at the Fletcher School some years ago. Um, and, but I've known Elliot close to a decade. So how this happened was um, I had the idea uh, of trying to write something that would reflect how we avoided a war during the Cold War by imagining how terrible it would be. So you mentioned Red Storm Rising, uh, the Third World War by Sir John Hackett, the Bedford incident, failsafe on the beach. There's a rich Cold War literature. So I went to my editor at Penguin Press and I said, hey, I wanna write a novel for my 10th book. I'd written nine previous nonfiction books. And he said, you know, Admiral, you're a great guy, but uh, you're not a novelist, but I know a novelist. and that's where Elliot came into the picture. Elliot? Sure, I would only add that, um, you know, it was an exciting project. You know, the idea of working with Jim was very appealing to me and we come to know one another over many years. And one of my collateral duties at the Fletcher School was to talk with the Dean about books when he feels like it. So, you know, we'd spent a lot of time talking about <laughs> books and I knew a sensibility. And so um, so we said, hey, let's let's, you know, let's see if we can write a first chapter together. And uh, we did. We had a very uh, aligned vision of what the book could be, and the rest is history. Well, Elliot, let me stay with you for a second. You've got to get the arc of the story down before you tackle the first chapter, I think. Now, some writers, the the a number of th thriller writers come on the show all the time, and they they just write, they start, and they finish, and it goes wherever it goes. 
But when you're going to do a book about the next world war, don't you have to have the arc of the story down before you start chapter one, Elliot? Well, we did. I mean, we had a, a general alignment about what the, the broad themes of the book were going to be. And we talked about that uh, initially to see if we even wanted to work on the project together. And then uh, we had a shared idea of, you know, what this first chapter would look like. But then, you know, you've got to really get down into the details of writing and, and figure out if, you know, we could effectively collaborate together. And, uh, you know, I'll, I will say what I say to people about the book is, you know, for a grim book uh, about the next world war, we sure had a lot of fun writing it. Oh, it's the grimmest of books and it's realistic. And I think people need to read it in order to think outside of the box. Admiral, let me begin. You talk about cyber capability pretty much every week that we're on. And uh, obviously I'm not giving anything away because it's in the first couple of pages of the book. Cyber vulnerability matters a great deal in the conflict, which is set 12 years down the road between the United States and the People's Republic of China. Do you imagine our cyber vulnerability is anything now like it appears to be a dozen years from now in your book, 2034? Uh, I fear that over the next uh, decade and maybe out 15 years, you're going to see China accelerate uh, more rapidly than we do in terms of both offensive and defensive cyber. And it's because they've invested so heavily in STEM training. They've invested deeply in this space. They're trying it out. Uh, just over the last couple of days, we've seen a probable Chinese attack on a wide range of Microsoft servers, um, industrial espionage on steroids. That comes on the back of Russia, uh, cracking us with the solar winds hack, getting to 400 of the Fortune 500 companies. So there's ample evidence that we are extremely vulnerable right now. We've got a lot of work to do and China is accelerating. We're not moving fast enough. So yes, it's a very realistic concern. Now, Elliot, this studio has in fact been subject to a ransomware attack. And we hardened up after six or seven years ago when everything that we had was, was hit by ransomware. You have a different level of cyber piracy established in the theme of 2034, where planes can actually be taken over and landed, where our defense systems can actually be kidnapped. Is that a real situation now, or is that your nightmare scenario in a dozen years? I think it, it, you know, aspects of that are real right now. And if we continue on our current trajectory, I think it's very plausible that that's where we'll be at in a dozen or so years. You know, one of the central themes of this book is how a over-reliance on technology can become a real liability in a nation's defense. Um, and so we wanted to interrogate that idea in the book and kind of get people out of a certain complacency that exists in the American mind, which is our assumption that we are the sole dominant military power on Earth. Well, that comes through very well. I am curious, the satellite warfare is not an aspect of 2034, though cyber warfare is. Admiral, did you purposefully leave out what is known to be a Chinese capability of attacking satellites? Um, no, we didn't purposefully leave it out. There are some things when you write a novel of the length we chose to, say, 270, 280 pages, we didn't want to write a doorstopper like War and Peace or uh, Red Storm Rising, which is almost 700 pages in length, or uh, The Winds of War and War and Remembrance taken together, 1,200 pages. Uh, so some things happen off stage. 
And so I would put space in that category. You're right to highlight it. And I commend the Trump administration for creating a space force. We're going to need one. Uh, I wanted to put the spotlight on cyber with the hope that someone will start to think about a cyber force. Well, let me uh, uh, follow up on that, Admiral. Right now, when I think of cyber powers, I think of the United States and China, obviously. I know North Korea has some capability. We know that Russia has some capability. And I assume Iran and Israel has that capability. But in this book, other people have capabilities. Are there cyber superpowers of which we are only dimly aware or rising that we are completely unaware of right now? I don't think there are any that we are completely unaware of. Um, the National Security Agency has a, a whole program to kind of track capability out there. And by the way, you didn't mention our European partners, many of whom have significant capability. France, UK, Germany is pretty good. Um, so yes, we are tracking this. Here's the point, though, that I think is germane for 2034. It's that it's about, uh, you know, 12 years away. It's, it was 15 years in the future when we started writing the book. Look backward 15 years and look how much has changed in this world. There weren't iPhones. Twitter didn't exist. These kind of massive cyber attacks were unknown. Everything has changed in 15 years. And I'll, I'll give you a number that will really make this uh, frame in your mind. Uh, in 2011, 10 years ago, there were 7 billion devices connected to the Internet. Sounds like a lot, right? Um, today, there are approaching 50 billion devices connected to the Internet. And that's great. I'm holding up my iPhone. I can close my garage door from 1,000 miles away. Here's the bad news. 50 billion avenues to attack. Massive defensive problem. So things are accelerating rapidly. And thus, I wouldn't be surprised to see um, India or South Korea or Japan or any number of other nations develop significant cyber capability. They might not want nuclear weapons, but offensive cyber can give you an awful lot of capability in very now, similar ways. Now, in 2034, a lot of action takes place, as one would expect, inside the West Wing, that cramped little space in which the executive branch functions at its apex. And in that one room where decisions are made, the uh, the situation room, there's only one error I can find in the book. And I don't think it's an error. I just think you did it to make it easy for people is that the National Security Advisor leaves his office and walks across the hall to the Oval. That's not, in fact, the way it works, Elliot. Did you guys just compress the West Wing in order to make it more dramatic? <laughs> I, I, You know, the, the action that takes place in the West Wing uh, is when I talk about the two of us being aligned, is we wanted this to be very much a character-driven story, that as much as there is technology in this, ultimately, you know, conflict, uh, war is the conflict between human wills, and you needed to put the spotlight on the human. However, I will say where the National Security Advisor's office is has often shifted from administration to administration, depending on how intensely that administration is focused on national security. Not since Kissinger... Uh, Admiral, that he, he claimed that corner office, O'Brien's old office, now Jake Sullivan's office. I don't think they'll ever relinquish that. But it's a it's a good right turn, left turn, left turn. Let me ask you about what you know. I mean, intimately, I am not I'm just a civilian. I don't know anything, but I've got a fighter pilot in my family uh, and fly Super Hornets. You guys know the Super Hornet community pretty well. Wedge is the name, the call sign of one of your uh, characters. And I loved on page 146. 
If it wasn't in his flight log, it didn't happen. Boy, is that accurate. So Admiral Savaritas, obviously you ran carriers and carrier groups and you know them, but who'd you turn to to, to fly spec your aviator stuff? Oh, clearly my CAG, as we call it, the commander of the air group. And this is uh, gonna be a pilot, obviously, who has um, already had command of a squadron and now is in command of all the squadrons. And then the second one, is if you're a surface line officer like me, as you know, Hugh, I'm a cruiser destroyer kind of driver. So they sent to all surface line officers, you get a chief of staff who is also an aviator and typically a post major command aviator. So you've got two real living experts on the boat with you, as they call it, the carrier. Um, and I spent a lot of time with both my CAG and my chief of staff. And then finally, um, they spend a lot of time, the Navy, taking destroyer officers like me and putting us, obviously not through flight training, but I flew many, many hours in every aircraft in the air wing. I went to Fallon, practiced bomb drops. Um, they dip you pretty deep in the culture of aviation. I have, a, I have a leather jacket and a flight suit and everything that goes with it. Elliot, I think every single F-18 pilot, now F-35 pilot, and their sister airplanes across the United States military is going to buy this book. Have you heard from your aviator buddies what they think about this? I have. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, Wedge, who is one of the heroes in the book, and his call sign alludes to the fact that a wedge is the world's oldest and first simplest tool. Um, and so... Uh, he is the commanding officer of the uh, VMFA 323, the Death Rattlers, and, and that is a specific nod to an old Marine buddy of mine who is right now the commanding officer of the Death Rattlers. Oh, wow. Um, which is a very old and storied Marine fighter squadron. Um, so I, ho I hope they enjoy it. Uh, I, I, I've started to get um, responses from friends of mine who are still in the military who are reading the book, and that's a lot of fun. Now, I know there are lots of generations of military families that go back many, many generations. I have not yet seen, as is betrayed in this book, a fourth generation fighter pilot. Do such animals exist? I don't think we've had enough time to have four generations yet, Admiral. Are there four generations of uh, fighter pilots out there? Um, there are uh, plenty of third generation that I have run into personally. I have not run into a fourth generation fighter pilot, but I think it's conceivable if you look at the chronology of World War II fighters. Uh, you know, I think it's possible. And anyway, we, we love that lineage going back to Pappy Boynton, one of the great Marine aces of the Second World War. That's a huge part of the book. And um, you know, I come from a, my daughter is a fourth generation military officer. Um, and so uh, we like that continuity, so to speak. I will say this about military characters in the book. The only, uh, the darkest character in the book, um, I won't give it away, but I will say watch for him. He's a West Point graduate. <laughs> we, are, we are going to come back to that in a second. There's a there's a very dark view in the book of the American political system. I don't mind giving this away. There are asides that bring people up 12 years from now. It's right. It's, it's uh, 2034 is the name of the book. And we're in 2021. So it's 13 years down the road. Uh, in there is wedged a one term Pence presidency. When did you write that in, uh, Elliot? When did you decide to give Mike Pence a term? Um, it was before the uh, 2020 election. So I think we we 
we, we have no way trying to write a book that is uh, partisan, but we obviously needed to deal with politics in America, which are, are very divisive. And so you'll notice there's sort of nods here and there to that division. And ultimately, in 2034, the, the president is a female and she is a independent. Um, that is, in fact, independent. If people want to know what the book's politics are, there aren't any, because it's uh, very pessimistic about the party system. Admiral, does that reflect your true na- your true belief about um, the party system, or is that simply the best way to keep it out of politics and focused on the military reality? Um, think about um, our two-party system. And, you know, Hugh, there are people who think somewhere in the Constitution, it says, you know, Article XX says... And there will be two political parties. One will be Republican. One will be Democrat. Hey, wait a minute. Um, We've had nationalists, federalists, Whigs, progressives, the true name of the bull moose party. Um, These two political parties are not inevitable. They are increasingly dominated by extreme elements, I would argue, on both sides. And I think the time is right for a new party to emerge. Whether that's in 2034, 2054, 2084, I don't know. But my assessment is that this period of polarization, Americans are getting tired of it. And a lot of polls show there's a big middle, um, you know, big as in 60 percent with, you know, kind of 20 and 20 on the, on the extreme sides. Watch for it. Will okay, it happen? Now, uh- don't know yet. Yeah, Elliot, I want to ask you about the overarching theme of the book when it comes to the military. This is what I took away. We don't know the capabilities of our adversaries. In fact, adversaries don't know the capabilities of their own allies. Allies don't even know the reliability of each other. Is that the current situation or is that the way you think it's going to go? I think that... Not only is it the current situation, not only is it the way it's potentially going to go, it's the way war has always been. And I think one of the ambitions of the book and one of the things we were aligned on in writing this book was we wanted to write a book that was also about war itself. You know, there are no, there are no good guys or no bad guys in this book. We wanted to write sympathetic characters, give everybody their time to make their case, because the true villain in this book is war. Uh, there's a there's a villain in this book as well, the Chinese Communist Party system. And Admiral, uh, I don't think this is going to be a bestseller in China, though. It's going to be read widely by the Politburo and the people who have the ability to access it uh, because of the criticism for which their ossified political system comes in. I, I love the Mission Hills. I'm not going to describe it. I love that scene. Um, how accurate do you think you're sizing up the, the CCP's ability to cope with conflict is? Um, I think we're quite accurate. And assuming China continues its current trajectory, which I think is a pretty good assumption economically, they will be able to maintain the support of the broad masses of the people, and therefore they will become an even more formidable opponent for us over time. Um, And yes, there are very dark aspects to how that plays out. Um, and, and all the more reason that the United States needs to understand um, this is a looming tower and we better get ready because the best way to prevent a war is to be prepared for one. So that's military deterrence, most obviously, but it's also economics, education, STEM, um, culture, engagement where appropriate. There are many aspects of this we need to improve upon. There are submarine fleets in this book 
and they are not American that matter quite a lot. Are you suggesting that the American submarine fleet is being overmatched as we speak? Um, I think that we are uh, gradually deteriorating in our level of military deterrence, which is to say, your word, overmatch. And exhibit A would be last week, the commander of Indo-Pacific Command, Admiral Phil Davidson, someone I've mentored, very fine officer, charge of all military activity in the region, testified in front of Congress to exactly that. Not just the submarine fleet, but the entire U.S. Navy is gradually being overtaken. And as you are well aware, China has more warships today than the United States does. Ours are more capable, bigger, nuclear-powered in more cases, but China is rising rapidly. And if we, if you will, go to the big dance with China, let's hope we don't, uh, they will be fighting on their home court, the South China Sea. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Time for a pause now in this edition of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. I want to remind you that our sponsor is andrewandtodd.com. They're with Sierra Pacific. They lend you money to refinance your house or buy a home or help your son or daughter become investors in real estate by becoming a non-occupying co-borrower. They help senior citizens with reverse mortgage. They help veterans with no money down mortgages. They help you refinance. So if you need to get money out of your house or you need a whole new house, go to andrewandtodd.com or call them at 888 Now back to this edition of Hugh Hewitt and the interview. Let me bring up one country that's not in the book because it's useful to illustrate what we're talking about. Singapore is not in the book. Singapore is investing heavily in submarines. Do either of you have an assessment of the capability of those submarines? Because there are third parties not named China or the United States with submarines in this drama. I don't want to give that away before it happens. What what are the capabilities of, say, Singapore's submarine fleet? Either of you? It increasing. And, and same with Australia, which is building a new fleet of diesel boats. Um, these are nations that are going to go for the super high-end diesels because they don't have to do deep, long ocean transits. These diesels are highly effective in the littoral. So look for uh, South Korea, Japan, Singapore, as you correctly mentioned, Australia, India will be uh, working very hard. And by the way, a big nation like India I think will also go down the nuclear-powered path in terms of submarines. So there will be more and more competition in this world, and all the more reason we have to be on the same page with our allies. Now, Elliot, a very—go ahead. I, I would just add one point. Um, 
you know, it might seem like this can't happen in only a handful of years, but it's worth reflecting that in 1939, the U.S. military was the 19th largest in the world behind that of Portugal. And, and we look, I think everything in this book can happen. I, I think the reason it's a bestseller is that it's persuasive, that people, they may not anticipate the events developing in the way that they do, but no one anticipated the events of World War One, World War Two, Vietnam. The and Maybe they, they understood the Gulf War, right? Maybe they understood that, but they certainly didn't understand the Afghanistan invasion where you have fought, uh, Elliot, and, mm-hmm. and uh, over which you supervise, Admiral. But this is the whole canvas of the world. Nice touch, 10G cables. Uh, okay, so that raises the question. Are there 4G cables and do sharks eat them? Either of you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yes, sharks do eat the cables. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's yep. okay. It's, you're going to surprise whole, everybody. The whole, the whole children's song "Baby Shark" is devoted to cable eating. Don't you know that? I didn't know that, and I, I when I read this part about the shark liking to eat cables, I said, "Wait a minute!" I made a note in my in my column. I wanted to talk to you about that. Also, want to pay whose uh, whose idea was Quint and Hooper because it's a wonderful little homage to Jaws. Uh, one is a senior chief, one is a newbie. Who came up with that? Um, I'll offer you a little. I mean, one of the things I love about being a novelist is you have to have an associative mind. So my wife is a screenwriter, and she um, she wrote the screenplay for Mile Twenty Two, a film made by Peter Berg. And when she was sure. writing that screenplay, I was working on this book as well. And he had made the pointer that one of the great films, one of the great intimate scenes in all of film is the scene in Jaws, if you remember, uh, where they're sitting on the orca, the three of them, Quint, and he's talking about being on the USS Indianapolis, and they're showing their scars. Um, and uh, anyways, that had me in the mind of Quint. And I thought, as, you know, as I recall that scene, Quint. He, that was not scripted. Robert Shaw went off script and they just let him talk. Right. But I. Right. That's that's along with you're going to need a bigger boat. Um, yes. Allies may want escalation, Admiral, and we may not want escalation. And bad guys, allies may want escalation and they may not want escalation. I think one of the, the overarching themes here is that escalation in world conflict can come from any direction. You, I just haven't thought in those terms for a long time because the USSR and the U.S. called the beat since 1956. I think the only major conflict begun involving the superpowers that was not begun by the U.S. or the so, or, or the USSR was the Suez affair. You're, you're going back to a world where our allies and their allies, the China's allies, might not think like the major party. Absolutely. And, and back to what we were speaking about a moment ago, um, how about that phrase, I could never have imagined, uh, let's fill that in a little bit post-World War II, I never could have imagined a war in Vietnam where 55,000 Americans die, by the way, when our population was half its current size, so call it 100,000. In Iraq and Afghanistan combined, we've lost uh, somewhere under 10,000. So Vietnam was 10 times more lethal. Um, I could never have imagined uh, the uh, 9-11 knocking down the Twin Towers. I never could have imagined a 20-year war in Afghanistan. How about this one, Hugh? I never could have imagined a global pandemic that grinds the global economy almost to a standstill. You and I, almost exactly a year ago, were saying, hmm, this looks pretty bad. 
And uh, let's face it, that phrase, I never could have imagined, can apply to that ladder of escalation. And before you know it, you know, uh, a, a missile there, a tomahawk here, a torpedo there, pretty soon you're talking tactical nuclear weapons. Escalation this, is real. This is the theory of escalation and the idea that it can be managed. And it's tit for tat times tat for tit. I mean, it goes back and forth, back and forth as the great powers attempt to manage it. Admiral, do you really think that's going to happen? If an American carrier is sunk, what does the United, that's 5,000 Americans. That's that's bigger than 9-11. Do you think any power sinking, I, I'm not going to talk about who sinks it. Do you think any power sinking a carrier can expect other than massive retaliation? Um, I firmly believe that you cannot control escalation in a very detailed way. And that is the theme of the work at the end of the day is um, don't put false hope in the restraint of others, whether it's us or them. Uh, as I think we've talked about before, Hugh, on the wall in my office hangs a picture, not of the carrier enterprise, which I commanded in my strike group. On the wall in my office is a picture of the USS Maine. And I keep a picture of that doomed battleship, which was sunk in Havana Harbor in 1898 there, to remind me of two things. One is your ship can blow up underneath you at any time. And number two is um, there will be consequences when something enormous happens. The United States launched into a world war with Spain. Back to that phrase, who could have imagined a world war with Spain in 1895? Nobody. Um, the uh, the main the main makes an appearance in the book. So for those of you who like a little bit of history with your fiction, not only is Maine there, but we've got actually we go all the way back to the first Persian War. Uh, and one great phrase, which I copied out because I liked it. Her father had once said to her that if you could snap your fingers and bring all the dead sailors in the Mediterranean to the surface, you'd be able to walk from the Straits of Gibraltar to the port of Haifa, stepping on the backs of sailors, Greeks, Romans, Carthaginians, Britons, Germans, French, Arabs, and on and on. War at sea began in the Mediterranean, but it might end in the South China Sea. Now, the South China Sea seen a lot of battles itself, Admiral, but you really did bring home the Med is where the bodies are. Yeah, this uh, was a uh, an homage to one of my earlier books, uh, which you've read, Sea Power, The History and Geopolitics of the World's Ocean, where each of the oceans of the world and some of the big seas, like the South China Sea and the Mediterranean, they are the characters in that book. Their history and geopolitical events occur. And I always felt when I sailed through this, through both the Suez Canal going north into the Med or when I came from the uh, west in through the Strait of Gibraltar into the Med, I would look on either side of me and think of those ancient wars and the World War II. And uh, again, I think the line is right. It, it, there's no monopoly on war in the Mediterranean and the South China Sea could be the next place you see a big war. Let's hope not. All right. Now, uh, Elliot, I want to talk to you about the National Security Advisor. And it's kind of personal for me because Robert O'Brien is one of my closest friends, late the National Security Advisor under Trump. And the bad guy in the book is Trent Weiscarver. I mean, he's the worst guy in the book. Is he not the worst American in the book? Well, I would say he's the most misguided. I'll be more charitable. <laughs> <laughs> so who are you basing Weiscarver on? His deputy is great. Matt Pottinger is going to love this book because the deputy's the hero. <laughs> 
Um, I don't think he's ba- he's not solely based on one individual, but you know he is definitely a person who has got an axe to grind and uh, and is pushing the United States towards war more aggressively than it might otherwise. And I think he is emblematic of the fact that it really can at times just take one one person uh, to to push events and accelerate events in, in really frightening ways. One of his enemies calls him a chicken hawk in the book. I, I've always thought that's the worst thing you can call someone. Is that a term of art used by people who actually wear the uniform you both have? You've both been in combat. Is that actually a term used by men and women in the armed services? Uh, I have heard it. I, I have heard it used over the course of my career. Uh, I won't say frequently, but um, I think when appropriate. What do you think, Elliot? No, I would just add that I've, I've heard it used, and um, I think it, it applies in the case of Wise Carver. That, that's, that's where, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a tattoo that sticks to him. Let me ask you about the idea of private diplomacy. One of your characters at one point says, when the nation-state apparatus fails, you have to go back to family networks. Has that ever proven true, Admiral, in your experience? Do family networks supersede ever nation-state networks? Um, I think in modern history, let's say post-World War II, you'd be hard-pressed to come up with an example of that. Pre-World War II, plenty of examples. Um, Many, many times, particularly uh, during eras of constitutional monarchies, of absolute monarchies, empires. Uh, Think marriages, marriage arrangements um, have often been a lever. Think about Henry VIII. Why did he end up uh, marrying Catherine of Aragorn? Because he wanted to calm the waters with Spain. Why does he end up with a German princess later on? I think the fifth of his six wives, um, because he wants to, uh, to, to take action effectively against the Roman Catholic world. So yeah, there's lots of precedent for family networks over history, less so in the modern uh, era that we live in. Could it happen? Could there be a connection like we describe in the book? Yeah, I think it's not impossible. Now, let me let me ask you about, I want to close by talking about the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and about the Chinese Navy. Elliot, you're a Marine, and uh, you're number one Marine for a while, had to be General Mattis, who I've gotten to know a little bit like I know Admiral Stavridis, not well, but well enough because of their books. I know what he thought of Soleimani. There is a whisper in this book that maybe it was wrong to take out Soleimani. Do you believe that? Um, I don't necessarily believe that it was wrong to take out Soleimani, but I think the book certainly acknowledges the fact that uh, that one of the principal Iranian characters, Qasem Farshad, is named after Qasem Soleimani, is a veteran of the forever wars, except, you know, obviously he fought on the opposite side as a member of the Iranian paramilitary Quds force. And I think he very much, that character represents the weight of those wars that will still be with us in the year 2034. He, he does indeed. And you have some sympathy for him. I, I haven't seen, and by the way, I think this is the strength of the book. It makes it believable. 2034 is full of believable people. You have some sympathy for the fellow who wrote, by the way, you, you intimate the battle of the Golan Heights where, uh, Iran, through its proxies or in combination with them, reclaimed the Golan Heights from Israel, which uh, yeah, Israel didn't play a large role in this book. But the one thing we see is that they suffered a defeat somewhere along the line. Do you have sympathy for them, warrior to warrior? I do. Um, you know, I also work as a journalist, Hugh, and a number of years ago when I was covering the Syrian civil war, 
I had a chance to sit down with a former <laughs> member of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, two Iraq war veterans sit down and we talk about our wars, but we fought on opposite sides. And he said to me at one point, he said, you know, he quoted Einstein and he said, the third world war will be a nuclear war, but the fourth world war will be fought with sticks and stones. And that's how we beat you in Iraq with sticks and stones. And so I, I have, you know, I have a sympathy in that I was, you know, very much defined by those wars. And these people who are my adversaries were similarly defined. And one of the themes in the book as well is the idea of, uh, of technology and how technology goes through cycles and how being low tech can actually be a huge advantage. Uh, and Admiral, a couple of things. One, you, Putin is still with us in 2034. Uh, and he's still running Russia. Uh, what's your estimate of that likelihood? If he's alive, uh, he'll be running it. That's my view. But does he live that oh, long? Yeah, you've got it. You've got it right on both counts. But, you know, look how healthy he is. We know because he takes his shirt off at every opportunity. Um, seriously, he's a vigorous, athletic guy. He's worked out his whole life. Uh, he looks he looks to me like he could go the distance. That's not good news for us, and it doesn't augur well for the role Russia will play, just kind of the role they play now, which is a spoiler in the international system. So uh, when we come down to it, there are two Chinese admirals in this book, and I'm not going to tell anyone what the roles they play are. Have you met their counterparts, Admiral Stavridis? Um, I think Elliot would agree with me. No, no character is... Uh, based on a particular person. This is not a Romana clef, as the saying goes. Um, but yes, there are elements uh, in all of the characters from people that I truly encountered. And I, I, I think we were talking a moment ago about how Elliot feels about uh, Farshad. I kind of feel the same way about Lin Bao. Um, he's a Chinese admiral. He's complicated. He has some American parentage in his background. Um, all he wants to do at the beginning of the novel, he's stuck at a desk in Washington. All he wants to do is get back to sea. And, you know, that I have had those moments sitting at a desk in Washington too many times to count. And also, ultimately, what does Lin Bao want to do with his life? He wants to be an educator. And um, he, he talks very movingly about how that might play out. And, um, you know, I, I, that was my thrust when I left the military. I became an educator and ran the Fletcher School for five years. And people ask me, why did I do that? And the answer is because of all the things I did in the Navy, the thing I loved the most was not so much going to sea or wearing snappy uniforms or defending my country. Those are all great things. I love doing them. But what I really loved was mentoring people, guiding the trajectory of these lives. And that is, that's Lin Bao. And so he's someone, you know, by the end of the novel, I have a lot of affection for Lin Bao. I think in the same way Elliot has affection for Farshad. Sometimes your opponents across these battlefields become part of you. Yeah, the last two questions have to do with the technologies of war in 2034. First of all, can fleets vanish? Uh, you know, we, we lost track of the Japanese strike group that hit Pearl Harbor and in 2034, both superpowers have the ability to cloak their fleets. Is that realistic, Elliot? I mean, can, in this age of super surveillance, can a fleet vanish? I think what we're seeing is an advance of stealth technology where a, a destroyer or even a carrier can have a signature that is similar to a fishing vessel. So 
that would allow a fleet to so diminish its signature that it wouldn't be it would become indiscernible from other types of ships. So I think it's plausible that in the future you will see uh, capability becomes much much more difficult for us to track large fleets. That is, I would I would say, Hugh, if I may, I would say I can't imagine a fleet simply <laughs> disappearing on the ocean. I think you get my point. I do. Last question. <laughs> I have assumed for a long time. Just assume, built into my Cold War calculation, I'm 65, so like the Admiral grew up in a Cold War environment, unlike you, Elliot, that there is no dividing line between tactical and strategic weapons, that uh, if you use a tactical nuclear weapon, you're going to have to use a strategic nuclear weapon. That is not the premise of the book. Admiral, did your, ch- did your thinking change in the course of writing this book on that topic? Uh, no, it did not. Um, however, what I am concerned about is that others might subscribe to that view and that some nation, some national security advisor, some leader of the Chinese Communist Party might think that, oh, we can use a tactical nuke because no one will ever go strategic. And then it's one, and then it's two, and then it's three, and then that's the whole point of the book. So uh, I, I hope that people view this as a cautionary tale, that they read it and say, miscalculations occur. Um, We shouldn't uh, over rely on precision on the ladder of escalation, because in the end, it's a ladder of violence. Um, War is slaughter, as Clausewitz tells us. And if we want to avoid it, we better start preparing for it and come up with a plan to deal with China. So there is a there is a element of the Dr. Strangelove, 10, 20 million tops, depending on which way the wind's blowing uh, in, in the book. And Elliot, you're a young warrior. I mean, do you think tactical weapons could ever be used in the absence of a strategic escalation in doomsday? I think I think that anything could happen. I think the concerns you're laying out where obviously it would escalate up to the strategic level are, are, are valid. I could also imagine us getting right up to the brink, seeing the employment of tactical weapons and stepping back from the brink. But I mean, you, you named it too. You know, we're kind of dipping into a very rich literature here. Of films like Dr. Strangelove. You know, I'm not a child of the Cold War, but I'm a baby of the Cold War. So I was old enough to remember seeing movies like Red Dawn. You know, all of these were cautionary tales that had us actively imagining what a third world war would look like and how horrible it might be. You know, and this book, again, tries to do that work of imagining, hopefully, so we can avoid it. Is there a successor? Last question, Admiral Stavridis. I'll let you answer to Elliot. Is there a follow-on novel to 2034 that is based on the events in 2034 in the making? Well, um, if if I really wanted to scare you, I'd say our next book will be 2054, a novel of the next pandemic. Yeah. Uh, but I will uh, I will not uh, I will not sign up for that. But I will sign up for working any day, anytime, anywhere with Elliot Ackerman. He is a absolutely phenomenal person and a great pure writer. Elliot, how about you? What's next for you? Um, I, I have some other projects, but likewise, you know, we just had a, a great time working on this book, and, and I'd be delighted to do anything again with the Admiral. So uh, hopefully we'll, we'll figure something out and we'll, we'll team up again. Uh, but this has been a, really a treat. Congratulations to you both. 2034 on bestseller list everywhere, and it's a two-day read, America. I inhaled it this weekend. You will, too. Go get 2034. Admiral James Stavridis, Elliot Ackerman, thank you for joining me on the interview. Thanks so much, Hugh. Thanks so much, Hugh.